Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with all of you guys this morning. I'm so excited to be able to jump into God's Word. Um, But before we do, I wanted to take a few minutes and just kind of pause um, and spend a little bit of time together um, just asking for God's intervention in some of the insanity that's going on in our world, because there's always insanity going on in our world. But we are invited as a people of God to come to him on behalf of others when there's particular things that unfold, just to kind of say, hey, we're going to stand with you um, as you are going through some difficult things. And uh, as you well, I'm sure know, uh, right now um, across oceans, uh, there is an insane scenario unfolding as the Ukraine faces a reality um, of of a brand new sudden change in life that has changed everything. So we want to just take a little bit of time to pray for that situation and for those people. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just news for me. I'm sure, uh, like for some of you here, it's not just news. Um, I, have, I have friends in the Ukraine. Uh, I know people in the Ukraine. Um, one of my friends just flew out to Poland uh, to move in and out of the Ukraine to move money and resources to help in the Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, I got to spend... Uh, a large part of my day in between doing the other things in a text stream with my friend from Poland and my friend here who's trying to get his daughter out of the Ukraine who went to visit her dying mom and she's moving her way through and we're trying to get her across a border which feels difficult and impossible and she's in her mid-20s now on day two on a bus having gone underground because they were bombing a city where the train was where she was at. Like this isn't some distant thing on a screen that I'm watching through a computer. It's actual texts and phone calls and people moving and trying to get through. Uh, And so we have a a lot um, of connection to this place. And we know the pain of the people, not just in theory, but in actual texts and phone calls. And, and, you know, for the people of Ukraine, uh, a week ago, a week ago, they were going to the grocery store, uh, heading to school with their kids, uh, doing stuff you and I do that we are going to do this afternoon and do tomorrow. And overnight, suddenly, all of that changed. Can you even imagine that? The answer is no. You can't unless you have lived in it, which some of you may have. But if you've never done that, you cannot imagine that kind of dramatic life change. And so we want to come alongside the people that are experiencing this sudden, utter life change, where now normal life is fearful life. Uh, Safe life is dangerous life. And known certainties are uncertainties. And and that's in the immediacy. So we want to pray for the people of the Ukraine. We want to pray for the people in Russia who are uh, not okay with this. There's always a whole bunch of those people, right? And, and they're all over the world now. And they're going, we're going to get lumped into this whole thing where if you're Russian, you're clearly for this. And I'm like, uh, really? Is that how it rolls? Uh, I'm sure all of us just rolled in and agreed with everything our governments did every time they did it, right? There's always those of us that are like, what's going on? And how do you protest that? And how do you engage in that? And how do you stand with that? And how do you do We want to pray for those people so that they can engage. We want to pray for those who are making these decisions, Forever their blindness exists or their uh, personal agendas are in play or their, uh, their blinded agendas of things are in play. We want to ask God to intervene there and change that. I want this war to end. Do you want this war to end? So I don't care if God ends this war by changing the minds of people who are making the decisions or by affecting the kind of force needed to change their minds for them. But I do not want this war because people are being hurt in, in the thousands and will be the millions. And it's, it's a sad and difficult thing to watch. So we want to we pray for that. And we want to pray for safety 
where safety can be afforded. And we want to pray for uh, salvation, where salvation will come. We want to pray for the believers in the country right now that are just as scared as everybody else, but they have something nobody else has. They have the big story, the eternal story. And so they are given a courage by the spirit that could engage in sharing the gospel in unique ways. My friends who are in the Ukraine that are pastors uh, who have been connecting with my friend in Warsaw, in Poland, have been getting back and saying, many of the people who don't know Jesus are asking those who do, what do we do? Can you pray for us? Where do we go? Uh, There are opportunities in these kinds of crises for the gospel to move in unique ways. And we want to pray for an emboldened sense for those who know Jesus and for the gospel to move. Gosh, that's a lot to pray for. And we are given the privilege and the responsibility as the people of God to come to him on behalf of people we don't know, to ask for his intervention, for their well-being, uh, and for the gospel to be um, expanded. So would you pray with me? And I'm going to pray on our behalf, and, and you can agree with me in prayer. That's why when often you hear people pray, and other people say, amen, amen, as you're praying. The word amen means Uh, it is true or let it be so, right? And so as I pray and you're like, I agree with that, you get to kind of just say a little whisper under your breath or a big loud. I don't really care. Like, amen. Yes, that, that what he's praying. I'm praying that too. And if I pray something you don't agree with, just don't say amen. And that's okay. (laughs) But we are praying together. And so you're praying with me as uh, we are praying together and I am giving words to our collective prayer uh, for our friends Uh, in the Ukraine and for those in Russia and around the world that are facing this insane dilemma. So let's pray. God, we come before you now to ask you to intervene in this crazy situation in the Ukraine with Russia. We ask you first and foremost to come in a tangible way to the people um, of the Ukraine who are uh, living in a sudden and massive break in their normal lives that brings fear and pain and suffering and struggle. God, bridges blown up, buildings blown up, invasions taking place, uh, uh, things being shut down, inability to move. God, we pray for those trying to get out. I think specifically, specifically of Katya, she's on a bus even now in the Ukraine, trying to get to another city where she can cross the border into Poland, where she can be safe. God, we pray for her and those like her who are trying to just get to safety and are stuck on roads and in places because the whole country's in gridlock. We pray for your comfort. We pray for your strength. We pray for your protection. We pray for your intervention. God, we pray for those uh, who are part of the Russian nation who can't believe this is happening and don't know what to do about it for emboldenment and strength for them, for their grief to be expressed in healthy ways. And for that to speak loudly to those making decisions uh, in this scenario. We pray for those making decisions wherever their blindness exists, that you would intervene and unblind them so that they might see rightly and so that they would not make decisions that hurt people. God, we pray for your intervention in the world, that the world would handle themselves well where we hold influence and power, that we would use that influence and power in a manner that would be helpful to the situation and that would bring it to an end. And God, we thank you for all those around the world that are now engaging to try to help um, make this wrong situation right. 
God, we pray for the believers that are in Russia and in the Ukraine and in the surrounding countries around those areas, that you would embolden them, that you would give them courage, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them words, that you would give them clarity so that they could both live and speak the gospel to those around them while they themselves are experiencing anxiety and fear in the uncertainty of the circumstances around them. God, we pray for them that you would be with them. We pray, God, that you would make this war come to an end quickly and that the collateral damage of this war would be uh, mitigated and minimized by your intervention. God, remind us as we watch this again unfold that we are quite familiar with in our world, these ugly things. Uh, remind us, God, that you have given us a clear story as to why these things happen, that we don't have to wonder about what on earth you're up to or how you're functioning, that we live on a planet of death infected by a virus sin and that it, it is having its way as you are unfolding the story of history and redemption to bring about a story that all things are made right. God, give us a trust in you as we watch and try and understand your patient forbearance with sin so that you might see your people come to know you. God, do what you do to bring about well-being in a situation that is anything but well-being and bring about redemption in this story in every single part that your will intends and that your power affects. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, it is hard, isn't it? Living in a planet uh, where uh, things are happening around us that, that seem so out of control, and yet engaging with a God who uh, declares himself so very much sovereign and so very powerful. And the collision between the two worlds becomes difficult for us so many times, both in the big global story as well as the day-to-day the -day stories in which we live, where we're like, what is going on? And I love that we have a God that didn't just leave us in the dark, that he gave us his word and he said, you want to know what's going on? I will tell you. I will show you how this all went down. I will show you what came into the human story, sin and death and, and the fall of mankind through Adam and Eve. I will show you what it's done. I will show you what it's doing and I will show you what I'm doing about it. And I will show you what the end game is going to be so that in the midst of the difficulty, you can plant your feet in a place that isn't just a guess, but is revelation. And I love that we have his word to do that. And that is exactly what God was doing, not just for us through his word, but for the very recipients of the letters themselves and the books themselves as they were written in the time in which they were written. We are in the middle of the book of Philippians and Paul is writing into a scenario where people um, had sent word to him because they were in a city uh, where it was complicated and things around them weren't making sense and Rome was strong and against them and they were facing persecution and inside the church there was much disagreement about how to handle that and what to do and what not to do and what is right and good and better and helpful and so there was internal strife and there was external strife and they were followers of Jesus and they're kind of going what do we do it doesn't make sense and so they reached out to Paul and he writes to them the letter of Philippians to say, let me remind you, let me declare to you by the power of the Spirit, what is the kingdom of God? What is our leader and who and how you are to engage with him? And that is the letter we've been involved in. Paul has been unpacking in this letter 
this story unfolding where he said, man, he started in the letter just thanking God that we who follow Jesus are in partnership together carrying God's kingdom into the kingdom of this world. He kind of did a lot of reminding on that. Hey, guess what we're up to? We're carrying God's kingdom into the world and guess who we're doing it with? Him and each other, right? That's, I'm so glad we're in partnership. And then he kind of went from there saying, you know, considering this partnership that we're in with God carrying his kingdom and with each other, some things we ought to kind of engage in as we process how to engage in a world in our day-to-day as well as the big globe. First and foremost, we are following our leader. So our attitude should be the same as that of... All right. Let me just say, that shouldn't be like a half guess, uncertain little throw forward. Maybe I'm wrong. Jesus. Uh, And there shouldn't be like three quarters of you like, I'm not saying a word. I don't know, man. Like that one should just be like right there, bold, clear, unapologetic. Uh, When we live our lives, our attitude should be the same as Renault's. That is what it needs. No, no. There is only one whose attitude we follow. And who is that? Jesus, that's right. Our King, our leader, our Lord, the one we follow, it is his attitude and his attitude alone that we are to measure our attitude to and to say, I want my attitude to be the same as his attitude. And then Paul uh, unpacked this beautiful hymn, song, poem about his attitude and said, if we're going to have our attitude be the same as his attitude, we should probably know what his attitude was and is. And we found out in that, that he had every right or prerogative to hold us in a place, but he emptied himself of his prerogatives, his, his rights by position, so that he could form into a servant for us and serve us to rescue us while we were his enemies, right? So there's his attitude. I'm, I'm going to set aside my prerogatives to serve you, to rescue you and see you redeemed while you're my enemy. And, and Paul's like, that, that's the attitude of, of our king. And then just last week, uh, we entered into the space where Paul now moves from kind of giving us that clarity to say, okay, so church of Philippi, so church of Mosaic, people that follow Jesus, What I want you to do now is to live in obedience to this clarity you've just gotten. So Paul didn't say, hey, folks, considering his attitude and that I said your attitude should be like his, I would highly recommend you kind of generally do his thing. I I would suggest maybe that's not a good idea. No, no, no. Paul gets up and he says, now it's time for obedience. In other words, an active pursuit of forming my will to the attitude and will of Christ by the power of the Spirit. I am not just in this as a suggestion. This is my obedience. And then Paul was like, that obedience is how we are working out our salvation, right? It is the outward expression of the authenticity of our salvation. It is what it births. It's how we live. We are obedient to the will of Christ. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, okay, now that I've set the table for you, we're going to start talking practicality. 
what behaviors, what actual actions should you avoid and what should you engage in in order for this obedience that is the expression of the attitude of Christ and the outworking of the authenticity of your salvation, what should those actions look like? I love that whenever the authors of Scripture are about to give us a set of behaviors, don't do these things, do these instead, or do these things, they never just throw that at us without any context or without any why. They're never just like, just do that. It's the right thing. That's what God said. They're always like, set the table on the whole story. Remember who you are and you're partnered with him and us and we're doing this together and and this is his attitude and yours should be like his and this is your obedience. You're like, I got it. And he's like, okay. Now we're going well, to talk how this plays out, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what, out there with the other humans, it's got to play out. So before we jump into how this plays out, I, I want to kind of take you back into a story that perhaps we haven't engaged in in a while. Some of you that are newer here may not even know this full story because it takes us back years as we've traveled through. And it, and, it, and it taps into Paul's journey and how he gets here because what he's about to tell us is our first actionable step into this will make a ton of sense when we remember how he got here. So Paul, if you remember, uh, when he started writing the letters, uh, he was on missionary journeys or church planting journeys. Uh, he went on three distinct ones, moving back and forth. And throughout those journeys, he would write letters back to places that he'd been to based on, again, getting word from that place that something was going on. And what we found as we traveled through the letters is that in God's sovereignty, the things that came to Paul that Paul would write back on started giving context for where the gospel needs to inform our lives. What do I mean by that? Paul started realizing uh, that he would write a letter, for example, to the city of Thessalonica because they were under persecution and they needed the gospel to inform how we live when we are under persecution. So he wrote the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Now, that's when he was in Corinth. Then he rolls from Corinth and he goes out. Before he ever did that to Thessalonica, he was, in, um, he was on his first missionary journey into, uh, Bithy- I mean, into uh, Galatia, where the city of Galatia and the city of Lystra is. And while in Galatia, he preached the gospel, came back uh, to home base. And while he was in home base, got word that the legalists had come up to Galatia. So he wrote a letter, Galatians, to a context of legalism. How does the gospel inform legalism? Galatians. How does the gospel inform persecution? First and second Thessalonians. Then he travels through Corinth, goes back up uh, to, uh, uh, to, to the uh, Asia Minor area, and he gets word from Corinth that they are lawless. And he writes first and second Corinthians. How does the gospel inform lawlessness. Do you see what God was doing? He was building for Paul this constant needing to say, oh, another human scenario. How does the gospel inform this? And Paul would have to write a letter informing us all on how the gospel informs that. At a certain point through the process, Paul is going to Rome and he has to write a letter to the Romans. And in the Roman church, remember, the Jews planted that church, were in leadership, The Gentiles joined that church. The Jews were kicked out of Rome by an emperor. So the Gentiles became the leaders of that church. Then the Jews came back into Rome. And now you have how many sets of leaders? Two sets of leaders. How does that go in the human race? 
super well, right? So uh, you got the, the, the Gentiles and you got the Jews and they're both trying to lead and Paul's going to this church. So he writes the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, we see this beautiful unpacking of the gospel. And he's really starting to deal in intricacy with the relational implications of the gospel to us as humans, specifically to the great walls of divide that functionally exists between us as people groups, the greatest of which in human history was probably between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? So he's dealing with that. And then after getting to Rome, he writes the letter of Ephesians. And if you remember when we were in the letter of Ephesians, we said Ephesians is in many commentators' minds, the pinnacle of gospel writing. It is, the, it is the top of the entire mountain. Ephesians, better than any other book, sort of takes the whole reality of what the gospel is and the implications of the gospel to us as individuals and as a community and just puts it on the table. And we said when we went through the book of Ephesians for those couple of years, that from now on, anytime we encounter a letter from Paul, in some ways, he's hearkening back to Ephesians. He's repeating what was in, in Ephesians. Why? Because when you hit the pinnacle of the gospel and you've now got it, what do you do with all the other letters? Yeah, you shape them, you mold them to the specific circumstances, but you're not going to say other things, bigger things, better things. You're just going to say the same thing in newer ways. Are you with me? You caught all that so far. Remember in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, in the book of Ephesians, we see what is, in my estimation, the greatest summary of the gospel in 10 verses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. At the end of those 10 verses, when Paul's like, here's the gospel, what we are recipients of, right? Then the next part of that chapter, he starts talking to the Gentiles and he's like, listen, folks, remember, you weren't in, you weren't part of the family, but what did God do? He came and got you and brought you in. And then he speaks to the Jewish people and he says, now remember, there was a mystery of the gospel that was revealed that we didn't know. And, and he tells us what that mystery was. It wasn't the gospel itself. Did the Jewish people believe the entire time that God would send them a Messiah? Yes, they did. Did they believe that that Messiah would redeem and rescue them? Yes, they did. Did they believe that that Messiah would redeem and rescue them for all of eternity? Yes, they did. Did they believe that that Messiah would redeem and rescue them from all the other nations and not redeem and rescue all the other nations? Yes, they did. The mystery wasn't that a Messiah was coming. The mystery wasn't that he would redeem and rescue. The mystery was that he would not just do it for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so you can go back to the book of Ephesians. It's in there. He's like, a mystery was revealed that the Gentiles are included in the family. And then he's like, and wait for it. This was the big, the, the big giant clarity. The, the sermon that God is preaching, not just to the world, but to the cosmos, the powers in high places is this sermon. What you thought was impossible, the uniting of a human race broken by sin, I have made possible. That's the sermon he's preaching. That's why heaven displays that in perfection. How many tribes, tongues, and nations will be there? All. See, in that place will be representation from all tribes, tongues, and nations, and there will be one. And so the pinnacle of God's redemption is the complete united reality of the human race. So what reflects God's power 
to the cosmos most is his people united. Are you with me so far? So that's a lot. And you're like, aren't we in the book of Philippians? I'm like, oh, yes, we are. But now you are ready, as I am, to see that what Paul says next makes all the sense in the world in terms of the grand and beautiful clarity that he gave us in the book of Ephesians, that ultimately the, the, the sermon to the cosmos is the unification of people groups under the banner of Christ and the ultimate unification of the human race in eternity together. That includes all the people you don't like that are following Jesus. Yes. And you're like, oh, my parents are going to be there. Yep. Sad to say. Oh, my kids are going to be there. Yep, that too. Even my spouse. Anyways, um, life, life is complicated and God is uniting us. Now let's take a look at what he says. Okay, uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, if you have your little notebooks with you, uh, you can get ready to start uh, jotting down because here we roll. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we covered verses 12 and 13 as that call to obedience, uh, and that is the outworking of the authenticity of our salvation. And then in verse 14, he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing, arguing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's Paul, his big thing, right? He's like, okay, boy, we're united with Christ on mission with each other. Uh, we're carrying the gospel. We have the attitude of Christ. So what I want you to do, this is the practicality is in how many things? All things. So how many things does that not include? You guys are like, I'm confused. None. <laughs> Zero. There's no parentheses here. There's no exception. There's no like all things except for when you know that person does that thing. Or all things except when life turns out this way. All things. It's how many things do we do what he's about to say? In all of them. All things. Whatever you're up to. Whatever's happening to you. Whatever's going around you. This thing he's about to say. Just, just, just in all things, do it a certain way. And the certain way that he says is, do it without grumbling and arguing or disputing, without grumbling. So we're like, oh, goodness gracious, what does that mean? I mean, grumbling. So, we, you know, we start down the road. What, 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 is, what is grumbling? Uh, grumbling is complaining. So does that mean I can't ever complain? Because he says, never, never complain in all things. And so what does that mean? Do I take all of my complaints and stuff them in my little soul and hold them back because I'm a Christian? And, and now I walk around and when you say, how are you? And I want, I want to tell you, but I'll be complaining. So I can't complain. So I go, blessed. <laughs> are you sure you're okay? Oh, you know. God is good. I am fine. And inside you're like, and then you just bear that until you die. Is that what he's saying? Because it could be. He's like, don't, 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 don't you complain ever in any circumstance at all. Oh, I can't complain anymore. And then no arguing. Zero. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. Don't you argue with me. I mean, you guys are going to roll home in the car. And the first thing that comes up with a kid, you be like, oh, sin. Is that, is that what he's talking about? So then we got to ask ourselves. Hold on, what does is, what is grumbling, grumbling mean? Is, is grumbling 
just the same as complaining in general. Can you interchange the two worlds? Is it any time I'm negative in any way about anything? Any time I have a complaint? Because don't you find things hard in life? Aren't there injustices in life? Isn't there places where people are not treating you as they should or treating each other as they should or things are not going on in the world? Aren't there circumstances that feel heavy and hard for you and, and you need an outlet to kind of say, these feel really heavy and hard? Don't you feel like God would make space for that? So what on earth is this grumbling thing? And so whenever I'm like, I think I know what a word means, but I'm not totally sure. I love those spaces because we all live there, right? I know what grumbling, do you know what grumbling means? Absolutely, what is it? I don't know, complaining? No, it's not. I mean, it is, but not totally. It's a certain type of complaining. So we go to the dictionary where people apparently put lots of thought into what this word means differently from other words. And it's very helpful. Watch this. Grumbling. Dictionary. To murmur or mutter in discontent, complaining sullenly. Mmm. To murmur or mutter in discontent. <laughs> what a beautiful clarity. So what, what it's saying is when, when you're grumbling, what you're doing is you have encountered some form of discontent. You're like a little discontent. When do we become discontent? When anything doesn't go our way, <laughs> right? If it's not what we want, we are immediately slightly discontented, right? Because when you're totally content, you're like, everything is exactly as I hope and want it to be. But in a second, it's not. You're like, I'm a little discontent, a little discontent. And what grumbling is, is when I take that little discontent and I direct it this way, I murmur and mumble and, and grumble to myself or to other people about my discontent. I, I take my discontent and I feed it with a murmuring. I love the word murmur because it almost feels like a whisper, right? And what does a whisper instill immediately? We typically don't do any grumbling right when the person we're grumbling about or the circumstances right there. You know, this is what grumbling always is. Come here for a second. Just checking to make sure we're alone in the corner. You know, I, I feel like this place or I feel like this person is this way. What do you think? Mm, I've had a similar experience to that. Mm, we must both be onto something. Mm. And then we kind of grumble. And so when people are like, what, what's grumbling? I'm like, I mean, you just kind of know when you're doing it. And, and how do you know when you're doing it? doing it? Because when you're doing it, it takes discontent. And it brings the discontent either to your own table, you grumble to yourself or to the table of another person or to God with no intent of the discontent diminishing. It brings it actually to feed the discontent, to amplify the discontent, to justify the discontent, to, to get someone to say what you are discontent about. Oh, you should be. Oh yeah, because I am. And we should be together or I'm not, but you should be. And when we grumble, the more we grumble, about circumstances or about people, the more we keep just articulating or feeling how these people or these circumstances are not doing what we need them to do, the more that moves toward dispute or argument. The inevitable end of grumbling is never contentment. It's always eventually arguing. Because the more you think about and amplify and perpetuate what you are discontent about, the more you will be emboldened to finally take that circumstance. And then our argument is to who? If it's circumstantial, you should go straight up. Uh, this guy, I got no human to blame. So I'm, I'm, I'm mad at you. I'm going to argue with you. And if it's relational, then it's like, ah, uh, that human. 
And eventually we argue. Sometimes we argue straight up and sometimes it's just like, hey, how are you? <laughs> like, whoa, what'd I do? Oh, they've been grumbling again. So what does Paul say? When we come as followers of Jesus and we want our attitudes to be the same of Christ and we want to engage in an obedience that is his attitude and we want to ultimately engage in the world in a helpful way, whatever you're doing, make sure that when you're doing it, you're not adding to that doing grumbling and arguing. So what can you add? He's not saying you can't grieve. Should we grieve difficult things, hard things, injustices? Should we express that grief to God and to others when we are grieving it? Yes, we call that lament. There's entire books of the Bible that are laments. They sound like complaining, but they are not grumbling. They are the bringing of grief in a complaint that is bringing to someone that is going to help redirect it away from discontent and into contentment in very particular ways. Paul's going to get to that in a second. So we always know that we are grumbling when two things are true. One, that our reason for bringing complaint is not to be redirected. Our reason for bringing complaint is to be affirmed. You with me? I don't need you redirecting me to a better place. I need you telling me that I should be discontent. Now, it's not like a direct, like I tell you, and then you're like, you should be discontent. It's like, mm, I feel you. Boy, that sounds, oh, I'm so, it sounds so hard. Okay, bye. Have a nice day. Or when I'm done grumbling, the end result of grumbling is always either my discontent remains exactly the same or it increases, it amplifies, it elevates. When I have grieved or I have come with lament to God or to others, the end result of that is a diminishing of my discontent because I have been redirected to truth that helps me realize my discontent is founded because I'm seeking my contentment in circumstances and relationships. And if you're doing that, guess what you're gonna be a lot? Disappointed, discontent. And so a redirection is like, oh, that's, that's it. So we can grieve, we can lament, we can engage in protest. Can we come to people when they have grieved us hurt us, are doing something that's difficult for us, or there's a circumstance because of what people are doing that we see as an injustice. Can we come to people when those things happen, biblically? Yes, the Bible doesn't say, when you are grieved by another human and they hurt you and they come to you, just, just bottle it up, baby. Just ignore it. Don't go to them. Whatever you do, don't tell them, because that'd be complaining, and we don't do complaining. Is that what Jesus said? Now, remember in Matthew 18, Jesus was talking and teaching. He's like, listen, when somebody sins against you, when the, something happens that, that bothers you, that's difficult for you, what do you do? Just in case you don't know, because it seems like maybe one of you knows, okay? You, 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 you go to them, the person, okay? You go to the person and then you're like, hey, person, like there's just some things we need to do, we need to chat about that, 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 that kind of isn't going so well. And then you share that with the person. And if you share that with the person rightly, and then they receive it rightly, then you make a brother or a sister again, right? That was kind of broken. But what if that person takes it all personal and then they go like all ballistic on you? And the Bible says at that point, you ignore it. You just roll out and just bottle it up. No, no, at that point, what do you do? You go find another friend and you don't find a friend that you grumble to. Discontented, oh, me too, let's go get him. 
You go find a friend that says, listen, I got this thing and I tried this thing and it didn't go so super well, but I really do want to make a brother or a sister. My, my hope is reconciliation, not going, well, could you come help? And then they come with you and you try that. And then if that doesn't go well, then you get a little group of people together. And then that doesn't go well, then you get the church leadership together. All with the intent of what? Squashing that person. That's right. No. Forming a bond of reconciliation because according to scripture, the way the world knows that we serve Jesus and follow Jesus and are part of his kingdom is by our what for one another? I love. So our goal, both personally and for a kingdom uh, end goal, is to always reconcile with those who know Jesus in a way that brings us back together. So what this is not saying, Paul is not saying, you don't get to grieve, you don't get to lament, you don't get to bring protest to people when things are going badly. What he's saying is, you don't get to go in some corner and grumble about it with somebody else or grumble toward God about your circumstances so that you can feed your discontent, eventually end resulting in argumentative attitude toward the person or God where you're like, oh, I can't believe you did that. That's what you don't do. And when don't you do it? Always and ever. You ever, never, never, always, never do it. You don't ever do it because in all things you do without grumbling and complaining. And then he says this. He says, um, because we want to be a people that are without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine. This is incredible language because whenever you find language, it seems a little like, whoa, crooked and twisted generation. <laughs> I mean, that's a, Wow. You always need to go, oh, I bet this harkens back to something in the Old Testament because it always does. When it is something that the authors say, I want to create a quick picture of how I'm tying these two things together and how God feels about these things. So where did this language, crooked and twisted generation come from where it was tied to grumbling and arguing? <gasps> we go all the way back to a time in Israel. In, in the history of Israel, they were once enslaved by the Egyptian people and they cried out to God, God, we are slaves to a bunch of people and our lives are terrible. And God heard them and he came and he got them and he took them out of that terrible slavery in which they end. And when he took them out of the slavery on their transition to the promised land, things got a little uncomfortable. It wasn't quite as nice as they thought it would be. They thought they'd get their best life immediately and they didn't. And so then they were like, what's up with this? And eventually as they grumbled together, the word is used in the Old Testament is they grumbled, right? What is that? Can you believe what God did? I mean, he pulled us out of slavery to stick us in this stupid desert. We've been here like 48 hours. It's hot. I want to go back to my little house where there's shade. And then before you know it, they're like, you know what? You should never have pulled us out of that place. It was better there than it is here. And then where did that lead the people? The grumbling leaded them where? To argument. They started telling God, what are you doing? Leave us alone. You gave us nothing. I'm in the little Red Sea incident. What's that? Right? I mean, it was just something like this. Oh my gosh. And every time Moses would go interact with God, they'd build calves and worship them because like, they'd be a better God than you. That's where grumbling gets us. So you know what God called them? Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses is now transitioning power to Joshua. He's preparing the people to go into the promised land. They've been in the desert for a long time because they what? Grumbled and argued. And so now he's kind of looking back and he's like, okay, let's learn a lesson, right? Here's how we don't do it in the future, okay? And he's writing this beautiful song, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in, in verse five, he says this, 
they have dealt corruptly with him. Who's the they? Israel. Who's the him? God. They have dealt corruptly with God. How? They are no longer his children because they are, listen now, blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Does that language sound familiar? Well, he just use it. In Philippians, you do not want to be blemished. You want to be what? Unblemished. And then instead of saying, you don't want to be a crooked and twisted generation, he says, because you live among a crooked and twisted generation. Do you see the beauty of this? It's the gospel right there that we almost missed it. He's like, you can't be a crooked and twisted generation because you know Jesus, but you can behave like one. And then you're not going to be unblemished in your behavior. So man, as you work this out, don't grumble, don't argue, wrestle, engage, seek out restoration, work through stuff that you get to do. If you're struggling in a relationship, by all means, grieve that struggle, by all means, lament about it in appropriate ways to the person and others that they can help you. And by all means, work on it. Do the hard arguing work, not alone in your living room. It never goes well. Get a helper. Do all that, but don't grumble, murmuring under your breath with other people about that human. And don't argue for the sake of arguing. Because when you do that, you are behaving like who? A wicked and crooked people. That is who you're in the midst of. And then how do they know the difference between you or us and them? They don't. And so then we are just the same. So how do we set ourselves apart more than any other way? By our love for each other, meaning we deal with each other even in our heart in appropriate ways instead of grumbling and complaining. Now that all sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And you're like, okay, great. But here's the problem, Renaud. You see, I'm surrounded by these other humans. And I'm surrounded by these circumstances. And they are often not what I want them to be. And so then... I, I like my preferences are violated and then I am discontent. And then when I'm discontent, I'm not content because content would be everything is as it should be. Then I have a propensity to want to grumble about that. So how on earth do I not? Because discontentment is going to be how much a part of your life? A lot. Not if you were a multi-billionaire, it wouldn't be because then you could have whatever you wanted. Do you follow the lives of multi-billionaires? They just keep exchanging people and stuff because you know what they are? Discontent. And do you know what people in poverty are? Discontent. You're almost like they're content. Have you met people in poverty? They're not content. <laughs> they're not, oh, but I went on a missions trip and they were all smiling playing soccer. Yeah, for that moment while you were there, but you should go hang out there for a year. Then it's not so much contentment. Doesn't matter what you have, poverty, uh, prosperity, life, your dream marriage, because that'll like start well, um, uh, your, your awesome kids. <laughs> I mean, we're just talking real here because here's why. This is our life, folks, on, on planet what? On planet death. And so Paul's saying you're going to encounter discontent. But when you do, you're going to be tempted to grumble. So how do you not? Good question. Look at what Paul says next. He then says this, Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, there it is. <clears throat> we don't grumble and we don't argue so that we can be a light and salt to a world that grumbles and argues about everything because they're constantly discontent. How do we do that? We make sure that when we encounter our discontent, what do we do with our discontent? If we're not going to grumble about it, what do we do about it? Ready? Here we go. 
holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul does two things here that are critical to your and my ability not to grumble and argue when we are discontent, but to actually have our discontent redirected to a place where it is, it is not discontent anymore. He says, first, you need to hold fast to what? The word of Christ, the scriptures, you need to hold fast. If you're not holding fast to this, you will immediately work diligently to argue until the people or circumstances around you conform to your contentment. And you're like, really? Oh yeah, you will. And how long will you do that for? Until you take your last breath. Because you are convinced like I am that if you argue enough, they will eventually change. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they do, I'm just saying, on occasion, but not usually as a result of your grumbling and arguing. Usually as the result of God's gracious and incredible intervention, which you would have had anyway if you hadn't grumbled and complained the entire time, right? So we think that our grumbling will do it, but what God says is, no, 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 no. The way you deal with your contentment is not to force all the other human circumstances or God to, to do what you need to be content. It is to redirect your contentment elsewhere. And to do that, you need to enter into his word and you need to hold fast to it. Because what does it give us? It gives us the big story. It gives us the identity that we have in him. It gives us who he is. It gives us what we're part of on this planet. It gives us where we're headed. It gives us what we get to do here. It gives us where our contentment should be settled. It gives us all sorts of information, revelation, and clarity for us to go, oh, it doesn't mean I won't be grieving, struggling uh, with this thing that's causing discontent. It means that I don't have to place my need for my contentment there, which means I will grumble and then argue and then fight until I have it. It means I can redirect. I need to Hold fast to the word of Christ. Listen to how he says it in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, this is how he said it. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So where does the word of Christ? He could have just said, memorize the Bible. And you'd be like, okay, I'll do that. That sounds right. But he doesn't do that. He goes like this. Oh, no, 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 no. What you need to do by memorizing the Bible is to have God's word Dwell where? Live where? In here. No, no, no. You need to take the words and you need to put them in here. And then how does it need to dwell in here? Lightly? Like a little bit? Like here and there? No, he uses the word. Richly. Fully. Completely. Like, oh. It's just like when we use that word, we're like, I ate the richest of foods. We're like, ooh, I want to go there. Richly in us. And then he says this teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So when the word of God dwells richly in me and it dwells richly in you, what are we to do with it first? Teach it to each other. But you're like, but, but why? It dwells richly in them already. Because at this very second, while you're sitting in this very church, you're already forgetting the gospel that I just preached to you. And so is the person next to you. So how often do you need them to keep telling you what's richly in them? All the time. And how often do you need to be telling them what's richly in you? All the time. Why? Because that allows us to hold fast to the word of Christ. That's why holding fast to the word of Christ is having this dwell in us and then having us teach it to each other all the time. So when you go to somebody in lament, what should be the outcome of your lamenting to them? That they do what? Admonish you in the word of God. 
So when you're grumbling, you can always know, I think I just grumbled because they didn't admonish you anywhere because you just came to them to confirm your discontent and they went, check, and you went away with them in tow going, let's go together and find some other discontent people. But if they admonish you, they say, man, I hear you. Wow, that sounds really hard. Let's redirect. Let's talk. Let's go to the word of God. Let's see what happens. Let, let me bring some of what's in me out. And then look what it says. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. You know what the opposite of discontent is? It's not actually contentment, though that is the fruit. It is thankfulness, gratitude. You cannot be grateful and discontent at exactly the same time. You can have something that is, uh, uh, in circumstance or relationship, grievous and still be grateful for, for things. But you can't be discontent and grateful. Because then the grateful is like this. Thank you. I'm like, yeah, solid. So look at this. Look at this. Watch what it says now. Not only does he say hold to the word of Christ, but he then says this. So that in the day of Christ, what is the day of Christ? The end game, when it all comes to fruition. Paul says, so that I can look at the whole story and your unblemished obedience, not your wickedness because that's in Christ, but your choice to live his attitude can actually be part of what I get to glorify him about. This isn't Paul saying, I'm going to be proud. I'm going to be proud. He's like, no, don't we all want to arrive there and look at each other and go, man, well done. Well done. Oh, so good. Thank you. Oh. And then we come to Jesus and like, well done, you all. And Paul's like saying, that's what we're after, isn't it? Striving for that. So when you're here and you're discontent and you want to grumble, stop, pause, and go, I'm about to grumble, about to grumble. Where do I need to go? Hold fast to the word of God and fix my eyes on Jesus or on things above. He wrote that in other places, Colossians and Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your mind on things above. Do that. And then Paul does one last thing that kind of sets the bridge for where he's going next. He's now said, in order not to grumble, when you're discontent, hold fast to his word, Read it, believe it, live in it. Remember who you are. Remember who he is. Remember where your contentment lies. Stay there, live there, go there. Then suddenly the other humans and the circumstances won't matter nearly as much. Then you can deal with them rightly. Bring your complaints rightly. Deal with them rightly. Grieve and, and lament rightly, but not grumble and argue, right? And then watch this. Then he says, and keep your eyes fixed on eternity so that you're constantly remembering on this planet. It's going to be rough sometimes, but who do you represent? What kingdom? That one. And which leader? That one. Not you. Not this one. And then he says this. He says, now, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's like Paul stops here saying, I'm going to give you some human examples. I'll start with me. Then I'm going to go to Timothy, then Epaphras, which we'll do in the next chapter, which we'll get to next week. But right now he's going like this. So I've told you to stay, hold fast to the Bible. I've told you to look up to eternity so that your discontent is solved there instead of through grumbling and arguing, which leads to war. Uh, and war is what? Bad. How do we know? Because we've seen war and it's bad, right? I don't want to lead to war. I want to lead to life. I want to I lead to empathy. I want to be able to start feeling towards somebody because I'm grieving and I'm sad. I'm doing all of that. And the way I'm going to do that with my discontent is start with holding fast to his word and looking to eternity. And then Paul says, and one other thing, just in case you forget, why are you on this planet? Why am I on this planet? To build the kingdom that I want. No, okay, that's wrong. Okay, 
to have the best life I can have right now because God's going to give it to me. Still, still wrong, still wrong. You might have a good one. You might have a rough one, but that's irrelevant because why are you on this planet? To be on mission for the kingdom of God. So if my mission means that I get poured out as a drink offering, that's out of, out of the Old Testament or even actually Greco-Roman culture, you take a glass of wine and you'd pour it onto the floor or you'd pour it onto a, um, an altar to kind of as a sacrifice to say, I'm surrendering what I want for the sake of this entity, being, whatever. He's saying, Who, who's, who's the living sacrifice now? Me and you. So, man, does this sound hard? Yeah. And will you sometimes, because you don't get to grumble and argue, not actually get what you want? Mm, maybe. And would that be a pouring out of yourself on the altar of sacrifice for the sake of another? Oh, Jesus, help us, please. For other people? Yep. And Paul says, even if that's what happens. I do that with gratitude because my life isn't mine, it's Christ's. And my story isn't mine, it's his. And so I do that now. And so should you. So should you. So. This week, as you watch the news, as you see what's unfolding around the world, especially in the Ukraine, we call that war. War is a terrible thing and it hurts lots and lots of people. And it is the results of terrible things in other people as we fight each other. The truth is when you're grumbling and complaining about someone else or something else, or you're in an argument with them, guess what? Guess what? You don't know this but you are inevitably participating in the slow process toward war at the end of it all. War between two people, war between families, war between nations, doesn't matter. Because grumbling always leads to arguing, arguing always leads to war, if it is just grumbling and arguing. So when you watch the news and you see the terrible realities of war this week, perhaps what it would stir in you as it's stirring in me is to say, man, I don't wanna be a participant like the rest of the people that don't know Jesus in starting wars, little ones in my home, little ones in my neighborhood or my social network or big ones in the world. What I want to do is be a participant in keeping my eyes fixed on things above, my mind and my heart settled in the word of God, my contentment found where it belongs. And then when I grieve things on this planet or other people hurt me to deal with that appropriately and biblically, through protest, through grieving, and through lament that leads to a diminishing of discontent, not through grumbling and arguing that just justifies discontent and feeds it. So Paul says, let's do everything without what? Grumbling, murmuring under your breath in discontent, sullenly, or arguing for no reason but to argue. And then we will be lights to this difficult generation. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you for showing us what it looks like to tangibly live out the beautiful invitation and command to have our attitudes be the same as yours. That in our day-to-day, -day, what that will look like is ultimately looking to the other humans and instead of going out and grumbling and complaining and arguing, about them or about circumstances to avoid all of that and to seek spaces and people that will redirect us to hold fast to your word, that will redirect us to keep our eyes fixed on eternity, that will redirect us to remember the mission we're on and will help us re-engage 
in that which is causing our discontent in a way that will actually be helpful in remedying the discontent and helpful in remedying what's the causing of that. You've given us through your word ways to do that. Give us the courage to do that instead of just walking around grumbling. And help us to be a people that show the world there is a better way, a better way than standing around in corners, complaining about each other and about things, arguing about them and ending up in wars, that your way is a better way. We thank you for your love for us. Empower us as a people, not simply not to grumble, not to argue, but empower us actually to hold fast to your word, keep our eyes fixed on things above and set our trajectory on mission on this planet to have your attitude toward others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.